right, welcome to day 251 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 17 through 19 and 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, uh, in Isaiah today, we continue with some of these oracles against the uh, nations that surround Judah, but uh, I think it ends in a place that's very exciting, something that I find to be pretty exciting. So uh, first off, we see an oracle concerning Damascus in chapter 17, and we know that in Isaiah's day, Damascus, well, for a lot of Israel's history really, but um, perhaps his own day is no exception, uh, that's how we should phrase it, uh, Damascus is quite a threat to Israel, uh, particularly when they're, well, I'm sorry, to Judah, particularly when they're teaming up with Israel. Uh, and so the oracle here, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city. It will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroer where, are deserted. Uh, Aroer um, has, uh, there's actually four Aroers in the Old Testament. There's one in Moab, there's one in Gad, there's one in Judah, and there's one by Damascus. And this, of course, is the one by Damascus. Um, they will be for flocks. Uh, uh, we've seen several times some of these oracles, uh, One some imagery that is used where you have animals now living in the cities, um, uh, and the the flocks there don't have to be afraid, right? They can just hang out. They can lie down. None will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. Here we do have a hint that this is the, during the time which they're in league together, right? Because they're mentioned um, side by side here. But then, interestingly, note the, the the hope that this ends with, the remnant of Syria or the remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the children of Israel. So not only is that just obviously hopeful, um, but also see, look how you have the word remnant used. And typically um, it is, uh, it, it, this is something that is used for Israel, right? It's Israel or Judah, the remnant will return here, the remnant, the Sha'ar, of Aram will be like the glory of the children of Israel. So future hope, and this starts to trickle down more and more as we go through today's passage, future hope for these nations, not just judgment. Um, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. So now here it kind of um, turns to Israel a little bit. The fat of his flesh will grow lean. Um, it shall be as when the reapers gather standing uh, grain. Uh, and his arms harvest the ears as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. So uh, think of the, the, the crops that you have growing in the, the field. Now they're laid bare because the reaper has come and gotten stuff. But here, too, it ends in a note of hope for the remnant. Gleanings will be left in it as when olive tree is, the olive tree is beaten. Two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree. Um, remember, the, the, the future uh, community that will, be, um, that will be blessed of the Lord after this time of judgment will be few, but it will be there, and it will grow to something glorious, is the idea. But then it, it turns back to what appears to me to be a word of, of, of judgment, Okay, and, and which is a little strange because it's phrased, in that day, man will look to his maker, his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel, right? And normally, if you think of that, it's like, okay, they're turning to the Lord, but um, but I think it's more of, more of, oh gosh, what just happened, and like, God, what is happening to us? Okay, so um, in the punishment 
that is coming from the Lord, they're not going to be looking to the altars, the work of their hands for answers. They're not going to look on what their own fingers have made. They're not going to look at their ashram or their altars of incense, uh, and their cities, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights. There will be desolation. And why? Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, the God who saves you, right? He's not just the God who's in charge and so he demands things of you, but he's the God who's actually saved you. Uh, you've not remembered the rock of your refuge. He's the God in, under whose wings you find refuge. Okay? It's not just God commanded you and you should do it and you're not doing it so you're getting punished, but God has actually loved you and you've turned your back and forgotten him. Um, and so though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day when you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, okay? So you're, you're super impressive at what you do, okay? Though you're, you're, you, you do a really good job at, at, the, at the planting and the bringing forth of fruit, um, it, obvious hyperbole here, right? They're blossoming in the same morning that they're sown. Even if, even if you are have all your ducks in a row and are really good at what you do, it will be a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like a, the thundering sea. And here we see this invading army coming once again. And notice how, um, how well this... Uh, gels with what we know about the invasion of Sennacherib in 701 BC. Uh, they roar like mighty waters, uh, um, and but but when they come in, right, this this thundering army, this army that just sounds like a torrent of a flood, he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains, whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror, right? And this is when they were struck. They were struck at night. Um, before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. So God is, um, you know, there's judgment, there's hope. Um, God is defending his people, all of those things. All right, chapter 18 then is um, uh, turns its attention to Cush. Now, Cush in the Bible, I might remind you, is the area south of Egypt. So this would be what we today know as Ethiopia, kind of the ends of the earth as far as the Israelites are concerned. And it's called here a land of whirring wings. And it's um, some people think that this refers to insects. Um, I think it makes more sense, uh, speaking of ships, um, notice it, they send ambassadors by the sea, vessels of papyrus on the waters. So, you know, the, I, I favor the other interpretation here where this is uh, like lightweight ships on the waters. Um, go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth. This is how they would have appeared, you know, the bronze-skinned um, Ethiopians, the dark-skinned Ethiopians, a people feared far and near, a um a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Um, Israel does not have a ton of interaction with Cush, but the interaction it has had, in particular, uh, we think we might think of during the reign of Asa early on in Judah's history, um, in Second Chronicles fourteen nine through fifteen. We saw how Zerach the Ethiopian had come up with an army that is 
unbelievably large, almost undoubtedly a hyperbolic number, a million strong coming into the land, right? And the Lord did save them from them, but that must have been just absolutely terrifying. So all you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, uh, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, there's that word again, nace. I think I pronounced it nas the other day, but uh, the signal, right? Like the flag, the thing you can see from a distance, it's raised on the mountains. Look, a trumpet is blown here for thus Yahweh said to me, I will look quietly from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. So God is just kind of chilling, watching, um, and um, and watching as before the harvest, before the blossom, before the flower becomes ripe, the the shoots are cut off with pruning hoops, uh, pr- pruning hooks. The um, he is lopping and clearing off the branches, um, and the it's they've uh, been laid waste so that once again the animals come, the birds of prey and the beasts of the earth um, uh, now uh, kind of finish off what is left. And the birds then summer on them and the beasts winter on them. And so the idea, of course, again, is before um, anything can really become of them, right? Before the harvest comes, before anything is gathered, uh, the Lord will cut them off. But do you remember what we saw with Damascus, right? It was this this, uh, frightening oracle of judgment, but then language being used of them that we so far in Isaiah has been reserved for Israel, So at that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts from the the very people. And look, the description's exactly the same of them as it was in verse 2. A people tall and smooth, a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. So this, this very people that was judged is going to be bringing tribute to Yahweh of hosts. And you're kind of like, huh, what is that all about? Well, now watch what happens with Egypt. Okay, so chapter 19, the oracle against Egypt. So Yahweh begins with Yahweh riding on a cloud and coming to Egypt. So taking a, taking a trip, a long-distance trip, and the idols of Egypt there, right? So here is the one true God, and all the idols are in his presence now trembling. And the, the people who worship them, the Egyptians, their hearts are melting within them. And um, and notice here how God acts. Um, he this is this tells of God's sovereignty over the things, right? Because it's not just like a, it's not just ambiguous imagery, perhaps, or some foreign invading army, the kind of things that we've come to expect in Isaiah. But here it's internal, um, it's internal internal um, turmoil. So Egyptian will fight against Egyptian. The, uh, each against each other, against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Um, the spirit of the Egyptians will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. Um, so they'll look to the to inquire of their idols and their sorcerers, mediums, and necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them. So it's it's uh, he's causing the the country to fall apart from within here, and um, I think it's noteworthy that the hard master that that adjective kasha in Hebrew is uh, the this uh, is used twice in Exodus to describe the way in which they treated the Israelites Exodus one fourteen and six nine 
their treatment of them is hard or or you might say harsh um and uh, th- and this this will continue so uh skipping forward to verse 11 notice again the 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 social collapse the 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 government kind of doing it to itself, tearing itself apart from the inside. So the princes of Zoan, Zoan, of course, referring to the northeastern uh, Nile Delta, are foolish, and their counselors give uh, stupid counsel. Um, uh, and, and like, how can you say, as a pharaoh would say, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings, okay? That's no longer going to be something a pharaoh can utter, uh, where are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what Yahweh has purposed against Egypt. And so, again, the princes of Zoan become fools. The princes of Memphis deluded um, the uh, those who are the cornerstones of her tribe. So the most important people there, the, the local leaders, have made Egypt stagger. Yahweh has mingled her in her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit, right? They will make it. The foolish leadership will 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 tear it apart from the inside, and there will be nothing left for Egypt that head or uh, tail, palm or branch, uh, palm branch or reed may do. So all these things that, you know, the palm branches and the reeds, especially the reeds, you know, all the, the resources that is that Egypt has are going to be sitting there. And no one's going to be able to do anything with them, just useless. Um, uh, and then if we back up a little bit, because we skipped forward to verse 11 and following, verses 5 also talks about, um, you know, is Egypt's central source of security, which of course is its water. That this, uh, you know, you look at you look at a map of Egypt, it's just uh, the, the, the Nile, right? And, and and anywhere that the Nile inundates has got this rich, rich, dark soil, and uh, then it comes up north into what's known as Lower Egypt, and it spreads out into the Nile Delta in these branches. Um, here we see all of these drying up. The rivers parched, the canals become foul, um, the branches of, the, of Egypt's Nile diminish and dry up, reeds and rushes rot away, um, and so uh, – and even, you know, the, the fishermen – who are uh, who 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 fish there are mourning and and lamenting all who cast a hook languishing who spread their nets on the water and the the workers in the things that grow because of this fruitful land the the workers in combed flax and weavers of white cotton making nice textiles and clothes and things like that and blankets and uh tapestries uh, there they will no longer be able to do any of that now I said that Isaiah that Isaiah really ends up in an exciting place today, and and um, I I love where chapter nineteen ends. So look at verse eighteen. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan. Okay, and this is so uh, Israel, Judah, uh, the, the obviously dwelling in a land that we could refer to as Canaan. Uh, is has uh, some kind of in influence now, right? Like that that now this Egypt is is torn down, and they are and they're speaking the language that you would speak in the promised land. And not only are they speaking the language, but they're swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. 
And then the English Standard Version reads, one of these will be called the City of Destruction, which, um, uh, of course, if it is, if that is the correct reading, then I think the meaning there is that like uh, a city in which the, the judgments, the aforementioned judgments took place has really ravaged, will, is now going to be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing by Yahweh of hosts. But um, another thing, important insight about that phrase, city of destruction, is um, that uh, there is abundant textual evidence that this actually re should read city of the sun. So um, uh, it, it, it's a it's a rarer Hebrew word for sun, the normal word being shemesh. Uh, here it's cheres, but uh, which is which is similar to heres, meaning uh, destruction. But cheres is indeed used to refer to the sun at least tw two other times in the Hebrew Bible, Judges 14, 18, and Job 9, 7. And, um, and indeed, the rarity of that expression to refer to the sun um, is probably uh, probably accounts for the um, uh, for the variant reading that we find in the um, later Hebrew Masoretic tradition, heres, which means destruction. Uh, it's just like in one in one it's a difference of one letter, and the letters look about as similar as letters can look. But um, yeah, so the the Cheres, son, is attested in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1Q, Isaiah A, um, in 15 other Hebrew manuscripts, um, in Symmachus's uh, uh, um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Targums, in the Latin Vulgate. So it's likely should mean one of these will be called the city of, of the sun, okay, which likely is referring to Heliopolis, a very important um, Egyptian city. But that's not the super interesting part that I wanted to get to yet. Um, verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. Okay, they're speaking the land of Canaan. They're uh, swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. There's an altar to him there. There's a pillar to Yahweh at its border. And you're, you're looking around, you're like, wow, this is, this is not the Egypt that I know. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. Um, uh, when they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. That sounds a lot like Israel, right? The striking and then the turning uh, to the Lord and, and the healing of them. Uh, notice how he says it, right? That he will send them a savior and a defender Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day, will worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. This is what Israel should be doing. And Yahweh will strike Egypt. And here again, we have the striking and the healing. Um, and um, noteworthy is that striking here, uh, the, the verb that's used, nagaf in Hebrew, is... Um, used of several of the plagues that Egypt had undergone. So um, it's used of the plague of frogs in Exodus 7.27. It's used of the of the killing of the firstborn in Exodus 12.23. And so <clears throat> in a way similar to that, they will be struck, but then they will be healed. They will return to Yahweh and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And now watch this. In so 
let me ask you, at this point in Israel's history, when Isaiah is writing, who are the two big baddies in Israel's history throughout all their years, right? It's Egypt, and now it's Assyria. You can't think of anyone worse than these guys. And uh, and and these are the ones from whom uh, the two exoduses have taken place. Obviously, the exodus from Egypt and the future new exodus that Isaiah speaks of. But now look what happens to these two nations, these two big bad guys. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now bust out your map. Where does that highway run? Right through Israel. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. So they're they're linked, and they're coming through Israel to one another. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. So think of like a Venn diagram, right? Like a pie chart. Um, one third Egypt, another third Assyria, and another third Israel. So these are incorporated into one as worshipers of Yahweh, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be. And think about how offensive this must have been to the, the, the first ears who heard this. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. No, we're God's people. We're the work of his hands. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So not to denigrate Israel, but to lift these other nations up. Now, um, I think what we see here is an important stream in biblical theology that takes us to what God eventually does in Christ, right? Because Assyria was judged, and they did fall, they did fall, right? And even and 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 they they are except for ancient history, they they are forgotten. They no longer have any influence. They're no longer a people. That's not to say that there's not modern day Assyrians, but in terms of the Assyrian Empire, right? Just like the in terms of Pharaonic Egypt, um, Egypt is still there. But it's what what this is saying is that those the nations that you can least imagine loving the Lord and worshiping Him along and being incorporated into the people of God one day will be, and so this becomes a like a type an an image of what God will one day do in Christ in taking those um, the peoples whom you would least think would be incorporated into the people of the God of Israel and make them his own, and having as as much of a home with them as Israel has. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians 10. So here Paul now is steering more directly into the critique of his ministry, and he will remain here for a couple chapters. Um, and this this kind of is like the, like the, the final phase of this, this letter to him. So notice how personally he wants to talk. Autos ego paulos, I, Paul, myself, <laughs> entreat you. Entreat you what? With a hammer, with power, with, uh, you know, with uh, scolding and rebuke? No, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And, and, and I, and I want to make clear that I'm doing that in this letter because this is the one whom apparently some are accusing of being 
humble when face to face, but bold towards you when I am away. So here I am writing in my letter, uh, and you expect me to be bold and bossy and maybe um, uh, making use of my apostolic authority, but no, I'm appealing to you now by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But notice how you also get the idea here, you see, you start to see what some of the criticism of him looks like, right? He's so un, he's unimpressive when he actually comes here, but when he's at a distance, he's not afraid to bust out the, the big words, right? I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with, su- with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So again, Paul is coming there, right? And he's saying, I want this to be a visit of peace. I want it to be a visit of meekness and gentleness and that I don't have to be bold and 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 throwing people out of the church if I have to, right? Um, um, you know, I, I I beg you that that might not have to happen. Um, and um, and if you want to know like why I am the way I am, it's because I'm not walking according to the flesh. I'm not trying to impress you. Uh, I'm not trying to um, to make you think that I'm awesome. Uh, or, or that I've got it all together, or that, um, uh, or, or any of the things that the eyes of this world, people who judge according to the flesh, would regard as as great. I don't have greatness. Okay, um, I don't walk according to the flesh, uh, and that's not the weapon of those are not the weapons of my warfare. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not of the flesh, but rather have divine power to destroy strongholds. So the same God that we see like thundering in Isaiah is the God who thunders through the gospel of God's mercy in Christ. And 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 through the knowledge of Jesus Christ we destroy arguments, okay? Um and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Right? That's what we're where that's what we those are the terms of the battle that we're that's the battle that we're fighting. Um uh, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, Murray Harris, uh, in his excellent Second Corinthians commentary, probably my favorite Second Corinthians commentary, says we carry off these foreign thoughts into captivity in Christ. The Greek is this big word, eichmalotizontis, right? We we ca- we carry these captives, these thoughts cap- uh, captive uh, to obey Jesus Christ being ready to punish every disobedience. So you get the idea here. Oh, some have suggested maybe even like a military court-martial kind of imagery here. Um, Being ready to punish every disobedience. And we've seen, um, I think the punishment that he's talking about here is casting the wicked people out of the church. And we've seen he's been dealing with a lot of this at Corinth. He's dealing with those who judge him according to the flesh. Um, he's he's dealing with those who support false apostles. He's he's dealing with the the sexually immoral idolaters among them, and even those who deny the resurrection. Okay, he doesn't want to have to do that, but he's ready to do it, and he's armed with spiritual powers for spiritual warfare in order to do this. Um, and so he says, "Look what is before your eyes. Look like." This letter is being read, but bo- bo- uh, presumably in your congregation, in in your gathered church, right? Look around. If any one of you is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself 
that just as he is Christ, so also are we, right? We belong to the same Lord that you do. And you know what? Sometimes maybe I do boast a little bit too much of my apostolic authority. I'm not trying to pull rank on you. Like, think of 1 Corinthians, how many challenging things he said in that, right? Like, like I, m- maybe I do come across too strong sometimes. Um, I don't want to be frightening you with my letters. Um, and and my critics, you know, they're harping on this. They say, just just like, you know, we saw, I am who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when, when I'm away. Now here it's like fleshed out in a quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person, such a person who says this, understand that what we say when led with by letter when absent you know like you're picturing you know how we often say like when you text you can't convey emotion properly or you can't nuance or get inflection and so writing is often open to interpretation like you're picturing what the person's emotional attitude is towards you just through their words and that we can we can mistake that and so he's saying like the same the same thing that I do when I present when I'm present, that's how I intend my letters. Like I'm not actually any different. But you the difference is is that you don't understand what authority in the kingdom of God looks like. You think it's someone pulling rank. You think that it's somebody being harsh. You think it's someone yelling at you. You think it's somebody, you know, threatening you and doing all kinds of um, or, or 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 using using the tools of worldly power. No, it's not the things I I write you as an as a humble apostle in Christ, and you are misinterpreting it. Um, I'm the same way when I'm present as I am when I write my letters, um, and I'm not. I don't dare classify myself, classify or compare myself with some of those who are commending themselves, like you know those who think you should listen to them rather than listen to me. Like, I'm not trying to compare myself with them. Um, they, they, when, when they make it all about comparison, you know, we're better than Paul, where where you should listen to us instead of him, they're simply without understanding. Um, the things that I boast about, and now here I, I've mentioned a couple times that Paul's theology of boasting is kind of interesting, and here I think he flushes it out almost as well as he does anywhere else. Um, when I do um, say things that can be interpreted as boasting, okay, or can be can be interpreted as pompous, right? Like, uh, if I need to, I will command you as your your apostle. I'm not boasting beyond limits. When I talk about the churches that 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 I've planted, when I've talked about being your father in Christ, when I talk about you know you being immature and me being able to call you out on that and telling you, you know, who to put out of the church. Think First Corinthians five. I'm not boasting beyond limits, right? I'm only boasting with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to me, or he's using the plural we, so him and those who are with him, unless, of course, this is like a editorial we or something like that. But um, I'm not, I, I'm only boasting regarding to the, within the area of influence that God has given me. These are things that are legitimate that God has given me, right? Um uh, we're not. I'm not overextending myself as though I didn't reach you. Like, don't pretend as if I didn't spend a year and a half with you uh, as the one who established you in Christ. I we were the first to come to you, uh, all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Um, 
I, I, I'm not boasting beyond limit in the labors of others. It's not like someone else planted you and someone else established you, right? No. Um, and in fact, our hope is that as you grow in your faith, as your faith increases, um, that my influence on you will will also increase because I'm doing all of this for your good. I'm saying all this for your edification. And so that uh, just like he says about his ambition in going to Rome, so that we may preach of the gospel in lands beyond you, right? I, it's, um, I pay a lot of attention to you, but I've got a lot of other churches that and a lot of other ambitions to share the gospel. And just like as it was with you, you know, I was the first to reach you with the gospel of Christ, we, me and my companions, right? We will be the first to reach them as well. And one of the things that that means is that um, is that I'm not boasting in someone else's work. I'm boasting in what God has done. Um, uh, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And this is, uh, of course, a quotation from Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, a, quote, uh, a, a passage that he also shared with them in 1 Corinthians 1, 31. So, you know, he's made you know clear that any boasting he has is boasting in the Lord. And again, I think, um, as I noted uh, in Romans 15 when we were there, I think he says something very similar um, to clarify, you know, what he boasts about and what he doesn't. So he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Um, so, and, and, and he makes it, therefore, his ambition to preach the gospel, where, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but rather, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." So Paul is all about reaching the unreached and planting churches where churches do not exist, and that is the area that he uh, can exercise his authority as an apostle. And if you want to call that boasting, go ahead, but it's boasting about what the Lord has done through him. Um, and he ends, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, because there's plenty among you who are happy to commend themselves, but the one whom the Lord commends. And if you want evidence that the Lord has commended me, look at yourselves and look at your faith and look at the fruit that the Lord has produced through what he used me to start among you. All right, that's it for today. As always, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.